Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to our Peace and Interfaith panel today. My name is Manaz Laga, and I am a Talent and Org Development Coordinator with NBC Universal, as well as co-founder and executive director of operations with the Sahifa Foundation. Today, I will be moderating today's session and joined by our esteemed panelists, Sayyid Hussein Kazwini and Sheikh Fayyaz Jaffer. But first, I'd like to introduce them formally. Sayyid Hussein Kazwini has studied at the seminaries Arbala and Najaf, and he has a number of publications on topics like Islamic law, jurisprudence, and the science of biography. He holds a bachelor's in Islamic studies from UC Berkeley. And Sheikh Fayyaz Jaffer has also studied at the seminary in Karbala. He's currently the associate chaplain and research scholar at the Islamic Center at New York University. He holds a master's degree in Islamic studies with a concentration in early Islamic history. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So our topic for today is both timely and paramount to our continued success, not only as a community, but also part of larger society. And so initially we wanted to frame the conversation by rooting it in the Quranic perspective, but I see that uh, Sayyid Hussein Kazwini might have some technical difficulties. So first I'd like to pivot and turn to Sheikh Fayyaz Jaffer. You know, interfaith in the context of religion can often equate to the idea tolerance and kind of coexisting without causing too much conflict. So Sheikh Fayyaz, would you be able to share some light in terms of how we can have positive, meaningful interactions instead of divisive debates? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that we live in a world um, that is, you know, seemingly driven by a lot of polemical rhetoric. Um, and oftentimes we see ourselves kind of uh, in a very polarized climate on two unique sides of the spectrum. So in the context of, I don't know, maybe the last eight years plus uh, in the United States, for instance, there is, you know, this ongoing conversation of Democrat and, you know, Republican. And you're on one side of the spectrum politically, you're either conservative or you're liberal and, and so on. And I think when we sort of hone in uh, and really focus our conversation in regards to interfaith, uh, interreligious engagement, there's that same ability and potential naturally as well to kind of fall toward one side of the spectrum, you know, either we're into this or we're not into it. And then at the end of the day, like, what's the objective? And I think that kind of in doing this work, it's really, really important and imperative to kind of, again, focus upon what are those ultimate objectives of engaging with, the, you know, someone from another community. If the idea is to create some sense of meaningful dialogue, great. But oftentimes what we see from, you know, interfaith and interreligious engagement is that, you know, the, the culmination of it ends up in having, you know, like a cup of coffee with somebody else and like eating some cookies, but, you know, without any sort of meaningful experience. So I think that if we're starting again by re-strategizing what our purpose is and the ultimate objective of interfaith engagement, because no one's asking anyone to kind of give up their religious ideology. No one's asking one another to kind of give up their ultimate beliefs. We have certain beliefs and we have certain convictions. Uh, and we want to stick with those principles. You know, we believe in God. We believe in the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We believe in the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, peace and blessings be upon them. We should never feel that me entering into a state of dialogue or engagement with anyone else is necessarily giving up those things. So I think that's kind of the most important aspect of it to kind of re-strategize and, 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 and restate virtually our objectives of what the purpose is. And I think from there on, we can find a lot more meaningful uh, conversation. That makes sense. Thank you, Sheikh Riyaz. I think you definitely set us up nicely in terms of what our conversation today will consist of. But Saeed Kazwini, I'm happy that you're able to join us with no tough difficulties, hopefully. 
And so let's backtrack for a minute and let's try to root this conversation into interfaith and Islam through the Quran. So as you may know, one of the common misconceptions about our faith is that there's little to no room for diversity of thought. You know, those who differ from us, whether it be in their ethnicity, language, or religion, should be considered outcasts of society. But we all know that this is not true. So Sayyid Hussein, how does Islam recognize, encourage, and celebrate that diversity, particularly within the Quran? A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. Of all, assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. To uh, our dear host, Sister Mahnaz, and to my dear brother and friend, Sheikh Fayyad Jafar, and to whoever is watching us from all across the world. First of all, the Quran celebrates diversity amongst human beings. Allah says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Ya ayyuhal nas, inna khalaqnakum min dhakarin Wa O you, O people, we have created you from a male and female. Made you into tribes and clans so that you may meet one another. The Quran is celebrating these differences. It celebrates the diversity in, in our race, in our nationality, uh, in our tongues. Allah says in, a, in another verse, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاخْتِلَافُ أَلْسِنَتِكُمْ وَأَلْوَانِكُمْ From amongst his signs for you is the creation of the sky and the earth and your various tongues, meaning languages, and your various colors. This is one of the signs of Allah Azza wa Allah is, is showing his power and strength through our diversity so this is something celebrated in the quran and this is something that we should celebrate as well it's not a a source of uh disagreement but a source of unity it's 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 a source of celebration and we have created you in different clans and tribes different races different languages so that you may meet one another so that you may complete one another so that you may understand one another and help one another the, the, the purpose of this diversity is that we may work together and understand each other and complete one another. So this is something that, uh, that should be celebrated as it is celebrated in the Holy Quran. We see that the Quran, uh, when it comes to interfaith, we see that in several verses in the Quran, the verse starts as, قُلْ يَا أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ Say, O you the people of the book. And this is a, this is a beautiful... Uh, expression it doesn't say say oh you Jews or or you Christians or or oh you those who don't believe in what we believe no oh you who believe in a book and we believe in a book so we're starting with what we have in common and this this verse is so beautiful the, the one that I'm about to recite and if we those who believe in interfaith and believe in uh, interfaith activism and and work in interfaith if they take this verse as a model, Oh, you who believe in books, oh, the people of books, come and let's agree to not worship other than Allah. 
And that's what we have in common with the people of the book. Starting, we have in common the Quran is on this. Uh, I'm running out of time, but the Quran <laughs> encourages interfaith. The Quran encourages dialogue the faith religions in a peaceful manner, in a civilized manner. Yes, absolutely. And I think the Quran is always a guiding principle in our in our lives. But we also know that we can look to the lives of the prophets and the imams and look at how they interacted with people from all different walks of life. So to say, Hussein, I'd like to ask you if you can share some examples about how these personalities approached this topic back when they were alive and what kind of lessons we can learn and maybe apply in our lives today. When we look at the lives of Ahlul Bayt, we see nothing but respect for followers of other religions and other faiths. One day Rasulullah was sitting with a group of companions, a funeral passed by. Rasulullah stood up and out of respect for the corpse. They told him, Ya Rasulullah, this is the corpse of a Jew. He said, so what? But he's a human. I respect him because he's a human. Rasulullah was giving us a lesson that it doesn't matter whether he's a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim, I respect him as a human being. We all know the famous hadith by Amir al-Mu'minin who said, people are of two kinds, either your brethren in faith or your counter counterparts in humanity. One day Amir al-Mu'minin had a guest, uh, a Christian guest. When he left, he walked him to, to bid him farewell. He told him why. He said, because this is what we believe in, in our faith, to respect. One day, Amir al-Mu'minin was in the desert walking with a Christian. And when they were about to depart ways, Amir al-Mu'minin walked with him, with the Christian friend towards his journey for a couple of steps, and then he returned back. He told him why. He said, because this is what Islam teaches us. Even if it's a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. He said, this, this is the ethics and morals of prophets. And when you look at the lives of all the other Imams, you see nothing but respect and honor for people of other faiths and religions. Imam Zain Abidin one day, a Zoroastrian was mentioned in an ill way in the presence of Imam Zain Abidin. Imam Zain Abidin said, no, don't say this. Don't say this. Every religion has its own form of marriage. That person made a, a, an ill remark Regarding that person's lineage, you said, no, don't say this. For in every religion, there's a form of marriage. So Ahlul Bayt exhibited utmost respect and akhlaq towards people of other faiths and religions. Great. Thank you so much. And Sheikh Riyaz, with that understanding of how our prophets and imams live their lives, and I'm sure there are ample examples in addition to what has been shared already, but can you provide some best practices for navigating these conversations in the 21st century? You mentioned it earlier. We live in a very divisive, very hostile world where people are typically trying to find ways to argue. So in this context, what can people do to have a meaningful conversation? And if you can elaborate a bit more on that goal that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I know for sure. And I think that uh, that's Sayyid Hassan, he was a lot more eloquent in his explanation than I, but just maybe just to pick up uh, where, he, uh, where he left off. Again, starting with this understanding of mutual respect as the foundation and, and you know, the guiding principle, um, not only of the way that we engage interfaith engagement, but the way that we engage engagement with people in general, right? Because this 
issues of divisiveness and of kind of falling on, on extremes in conversations is a problem that we find within our own communities as well. And, and I, you know, I think, I think it's an important aspect for us to start off with that foundational principle. You know, the verse of the Quran uh, in chapter 16, uh, God states, Udu ila sabila rabbik bil hikmati wal al hasana wajadilhum billatihi ahsan. He says, call people to the way of your Lord um, by being wise, bil hikmah. And some commentators of the Quran have defined hikmah as knowing when to speak and knowing how to speak. Wal al hasana and virtually using beautiful language for lack of a better definition, uh, lack of better translation. So I think if we're starting off with this idea, calling people to the way of God, what's the way of God? Other than, you know, the names and the attributes that he describes himself. Bringing people toward mercy, bringing people toward justice, bringing people toward compassion, bringing people toward the ultimate and most sublime qualities and values uh, founded within community and society that every single human being, whether you're a theist or not, embraces. Everyone loves justice. Everyone loves beauty. Everyone loves love. Everyone loves these sort of, foundational qualities or sublime sort of qualities. And I think, again, if we're starting with this, you know, maybe ayah of the Quran as a, as a you know, model again in approaching, um, then we do so, we bring people toward those most purest of qualities and values uh, by knowing when to speak, knowing how to speak, and by speaking, you know, politely, you know, in those, in those famous anecdotes between the Imams of Ahlul Bayt and those who may have spoken poorly to them, for instance, in that famous uh, narration, which I know that is often sort of also narrated, you know, on our pulpits, a man who comes to Imam al-Baqir and he speaks to him poorly and without, you know, getting into the whole details, the Imam would respond to him by telling him that, you know, if what you say about me is true, then may Allah forgive me. And if what you say uh, about me is false, then may Allah forgive you, you know? How can, when someone speaks to you poorly and you respond like that, it's the end of the debate, it's the end of the conversation, you know? And at the end of the day, this man, he comes and he states, you know, that I believe that there's no God but God and that Muhammad is his messenger and that you are the representative of God on earth because you've demonstrated by means of your akhlaq, right? You've demonstrated by means of your etiquette. So again, I, I mean, I think without getting into so many details, because I think the question was, was you know, partially answered by Sayyid Hussain prior, uh, prior to mine, um, when we start off with that, perspective and that view that we want to have respect for one another we want there to be positive outcome and engagement um, and maybe we'll talk about it later but at the end of the day like what is the strategy kind of beyond the interfaith uh, engagement and dialogue that we're that we're you know that we're enduring or that we're that we're aspiring for uh, when we know that we're working toward a common goal of making difference in our local communities grassroots society so on there's that much more opportunity for growth that's great. And that kind of leads me into my next conversation. You know, many of us can recount a time in our lives where we've been engaging in a conversation where there's a form of proselytization. You know, people are trying to convince other people to convert that my religion is correct, your religion is wrong. And in the context of interfaith Sheikh Shayaz, how do we really reconcile that and make sure that we're having a conversation? And we've touched upon it already in terms of having that meaningful debate, having that right intention. But more so, how do we avoid trying to tell people that their religion is wrong and that Islam is the true message? Because we are constantly encouraged to spread the word of Islam like our imams and prophets that came many years ago and we're doing it today. So can you shed some light on that? Yeah, for sure. I want to go back to that verse uh, that was mentioned earlier as well. Um, 
قل يا أهل الكتاب تعالوا إلى كلمة سواء right? that when God commands the messenger صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم um, you know to communicate with the Jewish and Christian communities he states God again states قل say يا أهل الكتاب O people of the book تعالوا إلى كلمة سواء let us come toward a common word let us come to our common understanding so when you focus on commonalities before speaking about differences, this is again like the ethos that you know God commands the Prophet to engage with in terms of other, other, other faith groups. So for sure, I think a lot of people, they, they kind of have lost the boat in terms of understanding why interfaith engagement is meaningful uh, because they, I mean, it, for, naturally it's very hard to, to kind of decipher or reconcile between proselytization of faith um, and, 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 you know, and, and engaging in, in, um, in, 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 in conversation, you know, in meaningful, in meaningful work. Um, so I would say that, you know, focusing upon those common values, right? For instance, over here in, in New York City, um, there in the last year or so, there've been a whole host of unique challenges around COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, as most people know, New York in, in, in March and April was heavily hit last year upwards of 30,000 deaths, many of them in our communities. What we began to see um, was the number of those impacted oftentimes fell on minority communities, Muslim communities, the African-American population, the Hispanic community locally in New York City, meaning financially they were out of work, there were more mortalities, more illnesses for a whole host of different reasons, many a times due to socio-political circumstances and so on. And what we decided to do um, our institution, the Islamic Center of New York University, along with other faith groups and communities, was figure out a way to utilize our common core values of doing good to our neighbor, right? You know, to, at its most basic foundational principle, or just being good people to gather together and figure out ways to, you know, raise money or to support people, you know, vulnerable and isolated communities. And we learned this, right, from Imam Ali ibn Hussein, Zain al-Abidin, who's known for his worship, but at the same time, who's known for his service to community in the darkness of night. We talk about Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, you know, we talk about how he was the caretaker of the orphans and the widows, you know. Uh, in addition to him uh, recognizing his justice and his valor and his bravery and his courage and battle and, 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 and his ibadat and prayers and stuff, I think that, you know, we have to go back to those principles of Ahlul Bayt, whereby they also were those who were the first and foremost in front of, you know, the orphans and the widows and the most isolated and marginalized within their communities. And just over here, you know, our center, across sort of Sunni-Shi'i divide, and then even more so over the last year, we've been able to raise more than $3 million, right? Which I think is really, really remarkable. And, you know, I'm blessed and privileged to be a part of that. Um, but it starts with this idea of focusing on our shared values without, you know, um, um, kind of um, segregating on the basis of differences, but still remaining firm toward our religious ideology. We may get inspiration from different uh, from different traditions, spiritually, from different figures, Ahlul Bayt or otherwise, but at the end of the day, we're working towards something that is needed and that is valuable at this moment in this community today. Absolutely, and it emphasizes that shared responsibility we have to this conversation with that being that that should be a guiding principle in everything we do. And so as I move on to my next topic, I'd love to get your perspective on a very historic moment that will be happening later this week. Pope Francis is set to make his first ever visit to Iraq, where he'll meet with the Grand Ayatollah Shistani. So Sayyid Hussein, how significant is this moment in Islamic history, and have we ever seen something like this before? 
This moment is extremely significant because we have never had in the history of the pontifex and the history of the Vatican where the Pope had come himself, not a delegation of uh, priests or fathers. No, he himself is to Iraq, number one. This is historic for Iraq. And number two, to the city of Najaf and to meet with the top scholar of Shia Islam, the top major of, of Shia Islam. This is extremely significant because it has never happened before. Of course, we all know that uh, this Pope, Pope Francis, he, he's special. He's uh, different from his, uh, his predecessors in his humility, in his uh, public relations. Um, this will be extremely significant. Why? Because first of all, it's gonna bring, Nejef is already on the map. People have of Nejef, but it will more so come on the map. Shias have been neglected. Shias have been abandoned and ignored for, for so many years, their rights, their political rights, their, uh, their you know, religious, uh, the religious persecution that has taken place against Shias for, for centuries, uh, even in countries where they are the majority, like here in Iraq. In Iraq, uh, you know, Shias have gotten some of their rights in the past two decades. Otherwise, here they are the majority, but they have always been run and ruled by the minority. So Shias have always been the underdogs. They, they've always been booted. No one has given them the rights. We hope that this visit by the Pope, which is a very important meeting, it will bring back Shias back on the map, bring back Najaf on the map. We will realize the significance of Shiism, uh, the significance of the Marja'iyya, uh, the, the Grand Ayatollah, who has played a very, very important role in the stabilization of, of Iraq, and not just Iraq, but the entire re region. Iraq on the verge of going into a, a civil war. Sheikh Fayyaz knows this. He Iraq for at least two years. Uh, and I remember he lived in those turbulent years. Iraq went through very turbulent years. It was on the verge of civil war. But yet Sayyid Sistani, with his wisdom, uh, he stopped that civil war. And, you know, on the topic of inter interfaith and inter faith he he issued a fatwa of not uh, uh, harming any Sunni cities and harming uh, uh, any Sunni individuals and he put put a rest to, uh, to that history to that chapter of, of, of Iraq that bloody chapter of, of Iraq. this visit will be extremely significant uh, help bring uh, harmony and understanding between Catholic, even in our beliefs, there's some beliefs that that are believe, for example, in, in the intercession of the Virgin Mary. We believe in the intercession of our Imams. There's a lot that we have in common. There's a lot to understand, and I uh, hope that this visit will be the start of of something very, very beautiful between these two uh, faiths, Islam and Christianity. There's already great work done, but this will. Uh, you know, this will be the epitome of of the Muslim Christian relations, inshallah.
Yes, it's definitely a moment that's significant to both Muslims and non-Muslims, and all eyes will be on it. Sheikh Fiyaz, I'm curious though, do you think that this will kind of help break down some of the Islamic phobic attitudes that run deep in our society? And do you think we'll ever see the reverse where a top scholar, maybe Ayatollah or someone else, take that step to do the reverse? Maybe somebody will be visiting Francis at the Vatican. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, as for your first part of your question, I think that that would be, um, I think that's the goal. I think that would be wonderful. Um, and I certainly uh, hope that that's the case. Obviously, this meeting is very historic and momentic, and it has that, um, you know, it, it, it has an awful lot of potential to, to kind of shatter a lot of misconceptions. Again, probably not founded amongst, you know, senior leadership of, of, of the respective traditions, because I think there's a lot more understanding, but how it impacts kind of the grassroots communities at the end of the day, when, you know, the Shia community sees, you know, the, 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 the top scholar of the, of the world um, you know, being an engagement uh, or, in, or engaging with, uh, you know, with Pope Francis, someone of his stature and someone of his presence, um, hopefully it will kind of motivate or give that inspiration, uh, you know, to the local communities to kind of reach out perhaps to their Catholic counterparts across the United States or otherwise, um, and kind of see ways that, you know, we can continue to work together um, and build strategy. And I, I know I mentioned this term earlier, but I didn't really define it. I think that, you know, what does that strategy look like? Again, you know, working, if it's reaching out to your local church or, you know, to, 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 to a local, you know, student organization on campus between Shias and Catholics, for instance, based on what we see from our religious leadership, you know, I think it's important that maybe we start to engage and figure out ways not only to learn about one another, because learning in itself has a lot of benefit and reading a book or a book study, whatever, but more than that, again, how to make, you know, impact socially, like on the ground. So is there homelessness in our city, you know? we need to work toward combating that. Is there, you know, issues and, and, and concerns of, um, I don't know, um, domestic violence founded within our respective communities? What are things that we can do in terms of building the institutions that are meaningful toward impacting them? Again, we focus upon the leaders, the inspiration that we gain from our leadership and see how that emanates kind of, um, kind of, kind of thereafter. As for your, as for your, um, you know, your second question, and I think we've seen a little bit of engagement before about, about many Shi'i scholars visiting uh, the Vatican. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and, I, and, and, and I hope that that, you know, that, that, that certainly continues um, because that's what we need uh, from, our, from, our, from our, you know, our teachers and from our leaders. Um, and it's important that, you know, not to sound disrespectful, but I think that it's, it's really, really important that we're working toward communicating with the office of our respective maraja so that there are kind of coming to the forefront and doing things like that, especially holding them accountable or asking them or kind of explaining to them how that might impact, you know, or influence things on the ground. I know Sayyid Muhammad Taqan Madarasi did. So I think in 2015, 2016, he visited the Vatican's marja. I'm not sure if there were any others, uh, but perhaps um, the Vatican previously has visited other, you know, holy sites like uh, if I'm not mistaken, they visited Qom in the past, but I could be wrong about that. But I think that, you know, focusing upon this particular, uh, you know, occasion of Pope Francis coming to visit Nejib, visit Sisani, I think that's, that's, you know, a huge step in the right direction. And I hope that, you know, it's only the beginning of, uh, of dialogue and engagement. Yes, we'll see after next week for sure. But with the final few minutes remaining, I'd like to ask both of you this next question and please take up to one minute to answer. Sayyid Hussein, I'll start with you. What is your hope for the future of interfaith relations and what first steps might our audience take to get us there? 
Um, I let me allow me to say that we have a lot of shortcomings when it comes to interfaith engagement. We, as a Shiite community, uh, we have a lot of shortcomings. We we are engaged. Some maybe in the UK, some in the US, but overall we still lack. And I think that our communities, uh, the ones that are active in the community, those, those who sponsor events and sponsor programs, they really need to pay attention to interfaith work. I think our communities have not understood the importance of interfaith work. You know, uh, when when there was the travel, the Muslim travel ban just four years ago with, you know, uh, the president at the time, who stood for us? It was the interfaith community. It was the churches and synagogues and others that came out to, to support Muslims and stood by the mosque and, and supported us. So um, if our communities don't realize the significance and importance of interfaith work, we won't get anywhere. We have to make awareness, create awareness in our communities that this work has to go forward, inshallah. Great. And Sheikh Fayaz, in one minute, what is your hope for the future of interfaith relations? Yeah, my hope is, you know, that it goes again kind of beyond the symbolic sort of gatherings that, that often take place. It's not about, you know, faith leaders or, 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 or community leaders to kind of get together, like take a photo, you know, put it like in a newspaper somewhere. I think that's useful and it's beneficial sometimes, but I think at least kind of in the United States, it's happened so often that it kind of gets played down in terms of the impact or potential that it has to make impact. So what I would, you know, ideally like to see, inshallah, uh, is, you know, that we can get together and again, strategize about ways that we can make a difference in our respective and local communities, uh, focusing on commonalities, but at the same time, respecting the fact that, you know, we believe what we believe and that we, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, converting somebody. It's not about proselytizing my faith. I believe and I have the convictions that I do. Now, how can I utilize what I've learned, what my religion teaches me to kind of be at the service of oftentimes the most vulnerable, uh, respectively, locally, uh, you know, in our in our respective society? Well, thank you both so much. That concludes our panel for today. And I'd like to thank you both once again for joining us and sharing pearls of wisdom on this great topic. But I'd also like to encourage our audience not to let the conversation end here. We need to bring this topic to whether it be our dinner tables, our conversations over Zoom with family and friends, our neighbors across at the church across the street. We need to keep continuing having this conversation so we can see real impact and change in our communities. Thank you. Thank you very much.